Does anybody have anything on their mind? Besides healthcare and the melting. <laughs> yes, but I mean non-trivial things. <laughs> oh, it's not trivial. I, getting back to the the practice yeah. thing, I just uh, I heard that uh, sometimes the let go of an attachment that people write things down and then they burn it. Yes. But you were talking about not to analyze. So, is I don't know. Would this be like a would this be a positive or negative tool? Because if you were to say write something down and get your feelings, wouldn't that be like analyzing? Or yeah. it would be a positive tool. It's not mindfulness. <coughs> I, I I wasn't suggesting that an analysis per se is not a good thing because analysis is a valuable thing. But um, analysis and mindfulness practice uh, don't go well together. But uh, what you're suggesting, like the question was uh, about if you have attachments, uh, one thing that some people suggest doing is you write them down on a piece of paper and then you burn them. And that's, uh, that's a little ritual. That's one of the things that our minds do respond to. Uh, just as they respond to mindfulness, they can respond in a positive way to rituals like that. And uh, so uh, there's nothing wrong with the self-analysis that's involved in deciding, thinking about and deciding what you're attachments are and what the obstacles are in your life and writing them down on pieces of paper and uh, if you do that then you have clearly in mind the recognition that these are things that uh, you'd like to be free of and then when you burn them it sometimes helps so there's yeah there's, there's nothing wrong with doing that yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you came in on the end. So, uh, but we were talking specifically about the process of mindfulness. And when I was, well, the reason I made the comments about uh, not getting into analysis is when you're practicing mindfulness, you just want to be aware. You, you want the clarity of your awareness to penetrate into what you're observing without your uh, conceptualizing, analyzing, thinking mind getting in the way because in fact that's what it will do. You know, it's like uh, you, you, you've got the, the, the powerful searchlight beam of mindfulness focused on your unwholesome mental state and then if your discursive mind gets active, it gets in the way and all your mindfulness is focused on is those thoughts which are happening at a more relatively superficial level. So to practice mindfulness, uh, you, want, you, you don't want to become analytical because it gets in the way. But the other reason you don't want to become analytical, and this is very important, and I suppose it's one you could keep in mind if you were doing what you talked about, writing your obstructions down on a piece of paper. You don't want to become 
judgmental. There is, when you're trying to free yourself of unwholesome emotions, mental states, there is no room in that process at all uh, for generating unwholesome mental states that are directed at yourself. So, you know, guilt and uh, self-recrimination and self-blame and anger and annoyance at yourself and all of these things that, you know, absolutely they're the antithesis of what you want. <laughs> Although if they do arise, then you just examine them mindfully as well. You expose them to the same revealing light of consciousness that you uh, expose the original problem to. And of course they will arise. But the problem with analysis is when we start to analyze, we start to judge. And when we start to judge, we start to blame. And, and if we've been looking at our unwholesome tendencies, then we start blaming ourselves and feeling guilty. And that, that doesn't. Accessibility of awakening. Uh, could I speak to that? Yeah, I love speaking to that. We might not get past this point. <laughs> <laughs> you say that sometimes you read things that would take thousands of lifetimes. And, well, <clears throat> I, my primary reference for accessibility was that upon the Buddha's awakening, you know, granted that uh, his powers as a teacher were unparalleled, but he was able, through speaking to people, to bring very large numbers of people to awakening. To, to different, there's four different levels of awakening. And he brought people to all four levels of awakening. So that, that's, I'd say that, that's the primary starting point if you have a question about how accessible is awakening, to see how easily it was attained when people were given the proper direction. A very important thing to understand is that the Buddha made it very clear that he had absolutely no power to enlighten or to awaken anybody else, nor does any other being who has achieved awakening. They, you, you're born by yourself, you die by yourself, and you become enlightened by yourself. And there's really, you know, that's, that's the fact of it. All the Buddha could do was provide the direction, and he did so exceedingly skillfully. So granted that he did so exceedingly skillfully, still, the fact that he was so successful was not due to some supernatural power he had to awaken people. It was due to the fact that there are, that there is this possibility that uh, it is accessible, that large numbers of people 
Now, when we when we look at the modern world and Buddhism and also other traditions in the modern world, we find that there is uh, a common belief that it's much, much more difficult for someone to become awakened now. And some people will say, well, that's because there's a difference in us, people now, compared to the people then. And uh, that is nonsense. I forgot to bring my little book of sutras, but I can read to you the Buddha's description of the people that he was dealing with, and they sound just like people that, that we encounter and that we are today. So it's not that people are different. Uh, it's I, I think the only thing that we can attribute it to is that we don't have the same direction that they did then. That's that is the difference. And. It's not that we have to have a Buddha, because the Buddha created, in 45 years of, of teaching, he created a lot of teaching that for a very long time was successful in bringing many people to enlightenment. But what seems to have happened is that it's gotten less and less effective as time goes by. And. Uh, so I see that as a problem. Uh, the accumulation of uh, misunderstanding in the Dharma as it's come down to us. There, yes? Well, don't you think also that, you know, at that time and in that place, there was uh, an acceptance of going forth, that kind of life. It was accepted and it was supported by the community. Whereas, you know, in our time and life, if we all decided to shave our heads, put on robes, and go early in the morning for alms, um, you know, pretty much nobody except on the 31st of October would give us anything. I, I don't know, maybe they would, but it's not in the culture. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there is a difference in culture with regard to it. I've often wondered what would happen, though, if we did shave our heads, put on robes, uh, sleep under freeway or, uh, under bashes, and go to soup kitchens. Because, I mean, they were homeless then, and we've got homeless now. <laughs> it's just that our homeless now aren't following the same kind of discipline. Basically, the only difference. Uh, I don't think that. Uh, if, if you look at it in another way, uh, nowadays people are much more fortunate and probably, uh, many of them do, but probably anybody who really wants to could simplify their life enough so that they could have uh, a very large amount of time to practice, and they would have very few uh, distractions uh, and other concerns to take their time and energy away from it. But the problem, it's a sort of a chicken and the egg problem. Uh, 
if you could do that, simplify your life as much as possible and have a lot of free time and energy, you could awaken more quickly, the result of which is that you'd be free of craving. But the reason that we can't do that is we're filled with craving. It's all of our attachments that keep us from doing what's necessary to become free of attachments. So there's a chicken and an egg problem there. But I, I don't think I don't think that is the major problem because there are a very large number there there, there are I, I, I don't know what the number is, but there is a tremendous number of people in robes in the world. And they're not having the kind of success in the practice that they once did. And there are tremendous numbers of people who are practicing Buddhism and uh, practicing meditation who uh, are not having the kind of, of success that it seems like they should have, you know, based, based on previous experience. I became, I, I was persuaded to start teaching meditation when I began to discover that there's all these people been meditating for years and going to retreats for years who were just beginners. They really hadn't acquired any skills in meditation at all, let alone insight and wisdom. And so that's, that's what persuaded me to set aside my own solitude because I was withdrawn from the world. And I didn't think anybody else needed me for anything. <laughs> and then people showed up and, and they wanted to. They wanted to join me in meditation and they wanted me to teach them meditation. And I found that these people had been practicing one form or another Buddhism for a long period of time and who had even been meditating and gone on a lot of retreats and were, you know, just hadn't gotten anywhere at all. So I decided, well, I better see if I can do something about it. So really this conversation is sort of an extension of that. I've come to realize more and more fully how the Dharma is not working in the modern world. And I don't think it's a problem of the people. And I don't think it's because the modern world is such that we just can't make the opportunity to do what's necessary. It's that the Dharma has become distorted. It's not taking us in the right direction the way it should. The same way I first discovered that the meditation instructions that people were getting are, they were failing people. They weren't, they weren't pointing them in the right direction and they weren't pointing out the most important features. And I'm not saying that there aren't any, there, there are some tremendous meditation teachers in the world, but there is a huge amount of meditation that's being taught by people who don't truly understand what they're teaching because they haven't actually uh, they haven't actually succeeded in their own practice. And I think that's the problem in the Dharma. I think over 2,500 years there's been a lot of people teaching Dharma to subsequent generations who had not realized the truth of the Dharma themselves. And therefore it was words and it was concepts. And you know how words and concepts are. I can say something and I mean one thing by it. You hear it and you hear something completely different. You know, and 
And so it's that way with the most ordinary things. When we're talking about the Dharma, we're talking about something that is by its very essence very deep and subtle. And so it is far more subject to misinterpretation and misunderstanding than the ordinary topics of our conversation. And uh, if you pick up any uh, Dhamma book that is written by a, a really well-respected uh, teacher with some degree of attainment, the Dhamma book is full of re-explaining things that people misunderstand the meaning of. It is very difficult to uh, grasp the Dhamma uh, without a real experience of it. These things sound more straightforward than they really are because it's just just because there's a depth that you have to take them to, and it's an experiential thing to really know. You know, we've talked a lot about no self here, and, and you know, I'm trying to direct and, and shape and, and mold your understanding to make it easier for you to come to that point of realizing directly for yourself the simple truth that there is no self in here. You know, there is no ego God in charge who you need to constantly pay tribute to, to through your, your devotion and, and, and cherishing. And uh, uh, it's uh, the idea that there is is at the root of your suffering. It's very difficult to grasp because we feel like we feel like there is a, a self, and we all we, everybody agrees that I'm a self and you're a self. We're we're all a self, so we keep reinforcing this uh, in, in each other. It's very difficult to to grasp this truth, but there, so we try to explain it, and then what we see is that. Somebody thinks, well, I know how to explain it. People really grasp it. And they explain it in that way. And next thing you know, people's minds are able to take this conceptual formulation intended to bring them to understand no self and transformed it into a new kind of self. <laughs> oh, I'm not that kind of self. I'm this self. <laughs> That's not me. This is the real me. Uh, and and this Buddha also has a, some sutras. Uh, I don't know. I might at some point have to get up and go into the room there and get, uh, get this book to, to, to read these things to you. But uh, basically, he, he says, uh, you know, there's people who think that uh, I am form, or I am my feelings, or I am my perceptions, or I am my mental formations, or I am consciousness, or I am this combination of these, or I am all of these, you know, or I am none of these. I'm something else. I'm something outside of these. Uh, uh, and, uh, and these are all concepts. And they, with these concepts, if we have a deep inner urge to find a self, then 
we're going to keep rearranging our concepts to try to find a self in there. So that is, now, I've chosen as example the truth that, there, that the self that we know is an illusion. What we are are five aggregates, there is no self. And that is the most difficult thing to understand of all. And when you truly understand that, you have awakened. And when you finally get over, even after you understand that, there's still a sense of being a self. And when you've overcome the sense of being a self, and you're, then you're a, 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 a Buddha, you're uh, an Arahat, you're a completely. So, but, so that is the most difficult one. But all the other concepts of the Dhamma are, they, they have a degree of subtlety to them that allows them to be misinterpreted and, and misunderstood. So it's very important that the person teaching them have genuine personal uh, knowledge of these. And if they don't, that uh, then they should just re repeat the words of somebody else who does. But of course the trouble, with, and they do that, and that happens a lot in Buddhism. But the trouble with that is when you've got somebody in 2009 repeating verbatim, word for word, a translation of exactly what somebody said in the 16th century. Now, how well would you understand something written in 16th century English? They wrote and spoke and thought differently. But you translate that into a different language and you have not only the difference in, in time and the way words are used and, and the world that people lived in and the, and the, and the culture totally different cultures. You see how much misunderstanding, potential for misunderstanding there is. And, and I see this all of the time. I'll, I'll give you another example before I get back to the main theme of how accessible it is Because that was, I didn't forget the original question. <laughs> but another example, the word nirvana or nibbana. Uh, this is another one of those difficult to understand concepts. And here we look at translation. Uh, we, we find that if you take the roots of nirvana, it, it means something like uh, the blowing out of a candle or the extinguishing of a flame. And so for a very long time, Definitely over a thousand years. I, I, I'm not. I'm not as sharp as I may appear when it comes to things like historical information. But well over a thousand years, this the meaning of the term nirvana, as translated as the extinguishing of a fire, has been totally misunderstood because of a difference in culture. Now. People hearing nirvana is the extinguishing of a flame and very easily think, well, this is some kind of annihilation. And after all, it does talk in the sutras all about cessation and the destruction of craving. 
and there's all these negative terms. And so it's very easy to people for people to interpret nirvana as being something that is essentially annihilationist or uh, uh, nihilistic or involves a, destru uh, a destruction. And that's because they don't know the cultural vernacular that the Buddha lived in. in we, for us, to put out a flame means that something is destroyed. But in, in the Vedic culture that the Buddha lived in, and continuing for a very long time after that, the principle of, the, of heat, the element, the heat element, was considered to reside freely everywhere. And that when you saw a piece of wood burning, that that was the heat element that was entrapped by the fuel. And if you look at a flame, the way a flame was seen is that it was constantly trying to escape, that it was entrapped. And the, uh, the word that we usually translate into English as grasping and clinging, you know, you hear in Buddhist background, problem craving leads to grasping, leads to clinging. That word, upadana, actually means fuel. Okay? So the metaphor is that those things we desire and are craving and are grasping is the fuel and the flame is entrapped by it and held by it. So when the flame is extinguished, it is actually liberated. It doesn't cease to exist. It escapes. And uh, nirvana is the extinguishing of a flame like the mind unbound. So the mind becomes unbound. Because when the flame is extinguished, it's liberated and becomes free and returns to its natural state rather than being entrapped by the fuel. It doesn't mean something is extinguished and put out. Although there is a sense in which something is extinguished, which is craving. But you see, there's so many, so many ways these things are misunderstood. And how many of you have read that nirvana means, nirvana is like the extinction of the flame and you thought of it in our ordinary, modern way of thinking of it. Nobody? Yeah? yeah? I would think if you've read much Buddhist literature, most of it will come across this. And it's, it's a misinterpreted metaphor. <laughs> but, you know, there's so many things like that. So, I think that, I, I think that awakening is accessible to virtually everyone, if they put the time and the effort in, and their effort is well-directed, and you need, you need, that's a really important thing, it needs to be well-directed. Yes? I was just wondering, this idea of extinguishing the flame, is that, is the original intent more like when the flame just goes out because the fuel has been consumed, as opposed to somebody dousing it? Yeah, but it, the, the metaphor didn't need to make that kind of distinction, because 
the idea that was so firmly developed was that when any fire went out, whether the fuel was exhausted, which would be uh, like the, the uh, I suppose like the five aggregates when they uh, fall apart, but it didn't matter whether uh, a fire went out because its fuel was exhausted or because somebody poured water on it. In the process, the heat element was liberated, was free. That was, that was the important point of the metaphor, the, the central point of it. Did you have a question? Just, just stretching. Okay. So, anyway, given, given that that we, it, it's very difficult to, you know, you take this dharma and you're sincere and you're dedicated and you put your effort into it, but it, if uh, studying the Dharma, listening to the Dharma tends to generate in you a wrong view or mistaken view, then that's going to make it more difficult. So that's one part of the problem. And of course, a big part of all of it, one of, one of the things that stands in the way of success in meditation is you develop the idea that this is hard, this is difficult. And it's basically a big part of your success in making progress in meditation is getting over that, uh, that idea, that belief that this is hard, that this is difficult. Anyone can learn to meditate. <coughs> and there's really nothing hard about it. It's just that you're going to have to bring your attention back to the object a certain number of times before it stops leaving. And you don't know how many that is, so you just keep doing it until the bucket's empty. And the same thing with all the other stages of meditation. You know, if you keep doing it, following the instructions, the result will uh, arise to the degree that uh, frustration, disappointment, um, uh, the, the fear of failure, uh, self-doubt, any of these, you, you know, the whole, I, I don't need to try to think of them all, there's a lot of them, but anybody that meditates, when they start off, they, they tend to have these coming up one right after another. And these are huge obstacles. And, you know, until they go away, you don't really have a lot of progress. Fortunately, when you do have some success, that helps to remove some of these. You know. when, you, when, when you have a fantastic meditation, then it helps to remove your doubt in the future. And so when you begin to, when you're in another uh, place where you're kind of stuck, you remember, well, I went through this before, you know, I was earlier on, before I was anywhere near as skilled as I am now, I got stuck then too, but then look what I can do now. That's one of the things I love to see, get somebody on retreat. And when they come in, they say, I did it. I sat there for a whole hour and I never lost the meditation object once. I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think I could do that. And I was so happy, you know, and, and so uplifted by it. Of course, if they can't do it again the next time they sit. <laughs> but it is, it's those successes along the way that, that help us to continue and that help us to get over these things. The same thing's true in the practice of the Dharma. You need, to, you need to know where you're going, you need to know how to get there, and you need to know how to recognize when you're getting there, you know, to, in order to 
keep you to keep you going and to keep you on track. Now, the the things that you mentioned, you find these over and over. You very time, often will find teachers that uh, are teaching that met, that enlightenment awakening is very difficult. Uh, it takes uh, you know. And they're not even saying it might take 10 or 20 years. You know, they're saying 10 or 20,000 lifetimes or 100,000 lifetimes, right? Boy, that's meant to encourage you, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course, then they say, yeah, but you better work on it now because you never know. The next 100,000 lifetimes might be as something else, you know, not a human being, so you don't need to practice. And... Uh, the common belief in uh, uh, in many Buddhist countries in the 20th century, uh, amongst lay Buddhists, was that there are very few arhats in the world, and it's very difficult to become enlightened. There were comparatively few mentors in the world. So these these are very counterproductive attitudes. The truth is that there are arhats in the and also that there are many stream enters in the world, but there are not nearly as many as, as there should be. And just to become awakened doesn't necessarily mean that you know how you became awakened. Uh, and even if you have a pretty good idea of what you did, the path you followed, doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be able to teach it to somebody else. So this is why the Dharma and the essence of the Dharma is so important because it's the structure by which the practice has to develop. To become awakened, certain things need to happen first. Uh, at, at least if they happen, they make it much more likely that you'll become awakened. You have to uh, stop making your life horribly complicated by uh, engaging in non-virtuous activities. To the degree that you cause harm to others, then you uh, live in an inharmonious environment where uh, that harm comes back to you in one way or another and makes your life definitely less conducive to doing what's necessary to become awakened. Taking what's not given is going to make your life more difficult, not easier. Engaging in false speech is going to enormously complicate your life, and you're going to keep getting hit with the repercussions of it. Engaging in harsh speech, same thing. Engaging in divisive speech, going to create alienation, problems, conflicts, things that take your time and energy. Uh, engaging in gossip and idle speech uh, creates far more problems than people realize. Um, with regard to gossip, it's a really good thing that in a uh, movie uh, with Meryl Streep playing, playing a, a nun, what was the name Doubt. of it? Doubt. Doubt. Yeah, And anyway, there's a little snippet of a sermon in there where he talks about uh, 
a woman comes to the confessional and, and confesses that she's engaged in gossip. And uh, so the priest, as her tenant, says, go up on the roof of your house with a feathered pillow, cut the pillow open, and let, let the feathers go. So she does that and comes back and says, I did as you said, Father. And she says, says, good, now go and gather all the feathers up. <laughs> That's the effect of, of, of gossip. It creates endless problems. Uh, sexual misconduct and all of the other ways that we can uh, exploit other people, uh, abuse other people, uh, abuse our relationships with other people. You know, these complicate our lives. They may seem to benefit us in limited ways on a temporary basis, but they create much greater problems. So virtue is absolutely necessary. You know, we were talking earlier about simplifying your life. Well, one of the biggest ways you can simplify your life is not changing your job or anything else like that, but it is to become a virtuous person, to practice virtue. Your life will become much more simple, and the world will support you. Because if, if you if you are known to be a virtuous person, you know the world is going to try to help smooth things for you, not not create problems. Uh, the other things that you need to do is you need to become you need to have an understanding of what the problem is and what the solution is, which I've gone over before and which I'll go over again many times. So you can work on it. Part of working on that is practicing mindfulness. So that, as we talked about earlier, that these unwholesome mental states, you can recognize them, you can observe them, you can overcome them, you can leave them behind. Uh, but you have to develop mindfulness. Well, how do you develop mindfulness? Well, you have to learn to meditate. You have to develop uh, right concentration and right mindfulness and use them to achieve, to accomplish right effort. Right effort is the one that we were talking about before. That's where you, where you eliminate those unwholesome mental states and you replace them with wholesome mental states and you keep the unwholesome from arising. And once the wholesome mental states are present, you keep them passing away. So that's the right effort, right mindfulness, and, and right concentration are uh, different aspects of our meditation practice. And understanding, if you do those things though, it will help to put your mind in the way that you can come to this place where awakening becomes a serious possibility, a genuine possibility. We are born with craving as one of our innate predispositions. All human beings come into this world predisposed to experience craving as a result of pleasure and pain. And when we recognize that we do not need that craving. We talked about that earlier, your question about, you know, how do you do the things that need to be done? You have to realize that you have to you have to gradually become convinced that you don't need this craving. And 
you're better off without it. And then you have to understand that it can be eliminated. It seems like such a natural part of us that it's impossible to do anything about. So you have to start doing the work and have the experience of overcoming craving so that you recognize that it is possible. In this way, you start working closer to that place where you can get to the true root, which is your ignorance, your belief in a self and your belief in the world that, a way that, that it appears to be. None of this is that hard to do. Did you know that although it seems difficult for you to believe that there, that you don't need to have a self, you have experiences all of the time that are demonstrating that there is no self in charge and there is no self experiencing. As the Buddha said, in the seeing there is only the seeing. And in the hearing there is only the hearing. And in the thinking there is only the thinking. There, there is a, a, a thought without a thinker. And that our intentions and impulses arise out of the conditioning of the mind, not as we lead ourselves to believe out of some I that decides to do that, to, to do this, or decides to do that. But we can have that experience over and over again where it's happening to us all the time, but we're not seeing it. Mindfulness allows us to see it, and then when you start to see that, that the self is not essential, the self is not necessary, then it starts to become easier to recognize it, the self for what it is. The self is, number one, a concept, an idea, a mental construct. And it exists because it's useful in certain ways. It keeps your body fed. It allows you to keep your laundry separate from somebody else's and things like that. It is useful, but it is nothing but a useful construct. It's not a self-existent reality. You know, a long time ago, most human beings were amazed by the fact that the sun rose and set every day, that the seasons changed on a regular cycle, that the rains came and went, that they saw that sometimes destructive winds came and floods came, and then other times that uh, the sun and the gentle rains that nourished the crops. And as you know, they explained this to themselves and to each other by saying that there were gods. The only way that they could understand this is that there was some kind of god that made sure that the sun rose and set and that the seasons changed and all of these things happened. You know that. Everybody knows that from the history of human culture, that this was a stage that we went through where people couldn't conceive that these things could happen by themselves. But to us now today, you know so much more than those people. And it's the knowledge, the conceptual, intellectual knowledge. Here we're not talking about any sort of mystical knowledge that has overcome your need to have a God to explain those things. You take it for granted because of what you know. That, well, of course the sun rises and sets every day because the earth revolves around the sun and it, and it turns on its axis. And this has been going on for literally billions of years. And 
it's not going to stop anytime soon. So, no problem, right? We understand weather. And so, yeah, the Earth tilts, uh, is tilted on its axis, so different parts of it are closer to the sun different times of the year. We have winter and summer. And water evaporates from the ocean and forms cloud falls and there's patterns of wind that move it. So, you know, we don't see any need for God in there at all. You can get to the same place in your own mind with recognizing that that these five aggregates do everything that they do just the way they've all seemed to do them. And there's no need for this inner ego God to account for the doing of it. And when you get past that inner ego God, then there's nothing to support that craving. And you can say, well, I'm an intelligent human being. I don't need to be compelled by by lust, greed, hatred in order to do the things that are necessary for me on a day-to-day -day basis. I'd be better off without those. These five aggregates would be better off without those. It's not that difficult to come by. You need to do certain things to get there. You need to have the mindful awareness to achieve that insight into that. So, yeah. so relating to that, um, isn't the idea or the concept of to meditate with the goal to attain enlightenment or with an attachment? In other words, does it really matter if it's in 10,000 years or tomorrow when we do the things you're talking about? How could it not matter whether it was 10,000 years or tomorrow? I mean, if you understand, if, if, if you experience suffering in your life, would you rather, well, let's put it this way. When you realize that suffering is something that your mind creates due to inherited compulsions to craving, wouldn't you rather that you found the secret of keeping your mind from creating suffering tomorrow rather than 10,000 years from now? Yeah, I, what I'm saying is more like when you do the practice yeah. and not getting attached to how fast that will lead you to something, but doing it, isn't that the main, the main thing? To the extent that attachment to becoming enlightenment is the problem, and when you get to a certain stage in your practice, it will be important to let go of that attachment. Yeah, so that's true. But at the outset, it is nothing other than our desire for enlightenment that will bring us to study the Dharma and actually sit down and meditate. Why sit down and meditate when, you know, all these other fun things that we can do? So, it's the desire, and we start from where we are. Where you are is a person who conceives of themselves as a self, who continues through time. And so, therefore, you are concerned for tomorrow. And there is a difference between tomorrow and next year, or tomorrow and 10,000 years. That's where you start. Make use of that. There's a desire to be free from suffering. And yes, that's a desire. And yes, at the deepest and most fundamental level, it's of the same stuff that other desires are. But the desire to become awakened is not the desire that's causing your suffering. When it gets to the point that the desire to become awakened 
is the only thing that stands in your way. That's the time to get rid of it. <laughs> Until then, then that's a good thing. <laughs> and that's and also as a part of your practice, this is where you can go wrong. Um, someone at the retreat I just said she was uh, I'm guessing probably in her 50s a successful businesswoman with a family came from a difficult background had accomplished a lot in her life but was very unhappy she had been going to the temple and listening to the teachings for most of her life and her understanding is that uh, her understanding of the Buddhist teaching was that all of these unwholesome states of mind that arise out of craving were her fault and it was her responsibility to do something about it. That's the way she got her teaching. And when in the course of the retreat through you know hours and hours of sitting and of course, things that she heard in the Dharma talks and then things that she saw in her mind. She began to realize that 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 was totally never going to work. That she couldn't force herself to be something other than what she was. And that blaming herself was just increasing her suffering. It wasn't, it wasn't helping. And she had this tremendous breakthrough of understanding Pride did the whole thing, which is good. Most of most doesn't important. I love it when people get to a kind of insight in their uh, in, a, in a retreat or in their practice that you know that that kind of emotional release is necessary because you know it, it, it's an external sign that they've really reached a deep level of understanding that have been that they've been blocked from before. You know, and, and it was wonderful to see that. That's a realization that there's a process, and the process, you begin where you are. I am what I am, and I am this way because of, of what has already happened in the past. What's important is where I go and what I become from this moment on. Um, and most especially to realize that you can change. The problem with our belief in ourself is that part of it, you see, your mind is so logical. You know, there's a kind of causality that's called mental causality. And that is that your mind operates logically. You may not know the, op the logical premises that it's operating on, but it is always totally logical. And so your mind, whatever it's doing, it will it will be what your mind, it, whatever your mind is generating, is what your mind feels like it has to generate. That's its job to, to produce this thought, this idea, this, this action, this emotion, this whatever it is. I kind of lost my thread there. <laughs> um, I was talking about starting where you are and realizing you are 
what you are. Don't know quite where I was going to go with that, but uh, I'll take off from that point in a different direction. You have to, what you have to do is change the logical premises that the mind operates. Oh yes, oh I, I know where it was. The self. As long as your mind attaches to the concept of self, and remember self is just a concept. It's just a mental formation. You know, it's an abstract idea. We, we can talk about objects as being entities, and this our mind takes the self as an entity. But inherent in the logic of a self is that you have been the same self for as long as you can remember, and that you will continue to be the same self. So there is this continuity of the self. And then there is this uh, uh, unitary quality of the self. You know, I am one. I, I'm not many. Right. In, in English, I like you know big letter I. One. That's me. Uh, this is an inescapable part of the logic of self as is separateness. There's no self unless there's something other than self. And so, whenever your mind is attached to the concept of self, it inevitably includes this idea of separateness or independence, the idea of, of unitariness, and this idea of continuity. The implications of that are a kind of unchangeability. And a lot of the problem we come into if we if, if we are told, as many religions, including some Buddhist temples, do tell people that if you are in a particular way, it's bad, and uh, you should be different. Well, part of your attachment to self is going to say, ah, it's impossible. I can't be different. I am what I am. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever had that kind of, oh, I am, but how can I, I want to be different. I don't want to be this way. How can I be? It's who I am. And that whole thinking is a kind of prison. And it's getting out of that prison that we want to get out of. That is the prison that we're, we're caught in. There is a, a, a sort of a parable, a story about a man is traveling at night and he's tired and so he lays down and he goes to sleep. And he wakes up and he looks around and he's surrounded by trees in a prison of trees. So he panics and starts running. And he runs and runs and runs and finally he's exhausted. He stops and he looks around. He's still in this prison of trees. He's surrounded by trees. This goes on for a while until finally he collapses and, and he falls asleep again. Then he wakes up again, he looks in and up, and this time he sees not the trees, but the spaces between the trees, and realizes that there is no prison. He can go any direction he wants, or he can stay right where he is, but there's no prison. And this is where we need to get to in terms of our of the self. You know, the five aggregates is the forest, but it's not it's not a prison. It's not substantial. They're constantly changing. They're full of spaces. Every pair of trees has a space between them. So liberation. Is, is is possible, it's accessible. 
you are not that far from the kind of understanding that is needed to liberate you. Um, the hardest thing to understand is the emptiness of self. And the next hardest thing to understand is the emptiness of the things of the world. And, of course, we, what is effective is a direct experience of these things to permanently and completely change the way our mind operates. So that, you know, if you have an ex a direct experience of no self, then your mind, being the logical thing that it is, is then going to operate in a different way. The prison is gone. And that's basically what happens. Uh, that is the event that makes somebody a, a stream enterer, that they arrive at the first stage of enlightenment by having that kind of experience, a direct experience of no self, that changes the way the mind functions thereafter. Likewise, the emptiness of the things around us. But it's not that far from you. There are cognitive scientists and philosophers who have spent most of their lives trying to understand the nature of consciousness and the nature of, and the way the mind works. And scientists doing this kind of research have come to the inescapable conclusion <clears throat> that there is no self, that the self is an illusion generated by the brain. Isn't that interesting? Not arrived at through a mystical experience, arrived at through laboratory research. And philosophers, of course, using some of this much same information, have carried the same understanding to even a subtler, deeper level. So the truth of no self can be arrived at actually through intellectual processes. And I believe that some of these philosophers and scientists who, through spending virtually a lifetime of confronting this, are realizing at a very deep level. But it's something, the evidence for it is available to us all. And once you have, once that begins to soak in, then you're, you become, you start to become very close to the place that you need to be. The same thing with emptiness of things, the fact that nothing, nothing exists the way that we think that it does. It only exists in our mind because that's the only thing we know is the mental construct. This is also something that has been discovered uh, and, and verified and validated both by scientists and philosophers. The philosophers are, are the phenomenologists. And they've come to that conclusion, although not all of them have been willing to accept it. And some of our modern Western phenomenologists go to incredible antics doing the same thing that most Dharma students do, still trying to find a self in here, and still trying to find an objective external reality in there. But nevertheless, their, their work brings them inescapably to the conclusion that whatever is responsible for our sensations, the one thing you can say for sure is that it isn't the same thing that our mind projects to account for those sensations. Right? So we live in a world of emptiness. A, an Indian logician of a long, long time ago named Nagarjuna used logic to prove that things cannot exist 
the way we think they do. It's logically impossible for the kind of things that our mind generates. The thingness. Basically, he said, thingness is not logically possible. And the other thing we think is that A causes B. And he showed logically that that, that can't be. And so, basically, this uh, he, he happened to be a Buddhist logician. But basically, what he showed is that a world of things cannot actually exist, and a world of linear causality cannot exist. Whatever is, whatever ultimate reality is, it's empty of thingness. That's called uh, that. That's called the middle way philosophy. And the realization that everything is created in our mind is called the, the uh, uh, Chitta Matra or Yogacara uh, <coughs> philosophy. The, the, uh, I like Yogacara better because the Chitta Matras were actually some, a confused subgroup of it who believed that the mind was the only thing that existed and the mind was real. But the Yogacharans basically went a different direction than the Garjana with his logic. And in their meditation, realized that, well, you know, what happens is, you know, there's a sound, and my mind creates the idea of bird to go with that sound out of things that I've seen and felt and everything else. And that actually, my entire world has been constructed over time out in, in this way, you know, with the addition of things that I've read and heard from other people. So this is what the Yogacara contribution was, is that this, this emptiness is just the ent entirely a projection of the mind in, in its attempt to explain things. But, but it's not that inaccessible. I mean, if, if these philosophers you know, can come to these same conclusions, well then with the guidance of the Dharma and the meditation practice, we can attain these same realizations. Yes? I'm a bit confused because I, it's my understanding that there's, uh, that Buddhist is very much, uh, Buddhism is very much centered on, a, on the concept of, of causality, causes and conditions. It is. So, so what you're saying negates that, can you, can you uh, clarify? On the level of relative reality, okay. Everything is causality. But if we put these things together, where is this causality happening? What's happening in, in the mind? And, and whatever the ultimate reality is, is not directly accessible to us as long as we are locked into uh, to our, our mental constructs and mental formations. So within the realm of mental constructs and mental formations, there is only cause and effect. There is only causality. And dependent origination is that principle that when, when there is A, there is when, or when uh, B exists, then A exists. And, you know, and when B doesn't exist, then A doesn't exist. And uh, with A is a cause, uh, B is the result, and, and so forth. That's dependent origination. We understand it as being linear. Ultimate reality is that of non-duality. 
Uh, so in that sense, even it, we understand that in non-duality, we can't have linear causality. Well, let's come back to relative reality. That must mean that, that everything is the cause of, uh, of anything, and anything is the cause of everything. Now, that is something that turns out to be true, too. That's another thing that modern scientists uh, have a conclusion that they've come to. And I think that most modern people realize. We've all heard and understand that, you know, the principle that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong, it's going to affect the, the weather in London. We don't know how, but everything is totally interconnected. You know, and uh, you change one little thing, one, one tiny uh, subatomic particle changes, it affects the entire universe. So everything, so even in relative reality, the principle of linear causality actually surrenders to ultimate causality <laughs> or the oneness of everything. But nevertheless, our experience of relative reality is more linear than that than it is of, of things and states. And so the principle of dependent origination is a powerful guide for us for understanding how the mind works how karma is generated, and how we come to be what we are. And once we understand that, we can understand how to reverse the process and how to escape from this illusion. So, now, the part of this process, I talked about virtue, right speech, right action, and right livelihood is a part of that, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. Uh, what we've been talking about now, right now is right view and right understanding. It is the wisdom part, the wisdom at, at the level of relative reality and what we can understand intellectually, and then also of what we can take into direct experience. When we're practicing mindful awareness, both on the cushion and in the world, we can begin to directly perceive the truth of these things. The emptiness of things begins to come clear through repeated experiences. And the absence of any kind of real substantial self in the operating of our aggregates begins to reveal itself more and more. And this understanding, as it penetrates deeper and deeper, it loosens our attachment to this way of saying things, which is what's necessary to make it possible for us to let go to see what really is. So I hope, in terms of the original question, I hope what I've talked about so far shows you that it's not that hard to do. You can, you can see these things. Now, if you, if you, the, the other thing is, uh, is the, 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 the truth of uh, dissatisfactoriness, sometimes called the truth of suffering. This is another thing that I didn't go into, but the same way, you can understand it intellectually, then you can start understanding it experientially. As these understandings deepen, and as you learn to go through your life mindfully applying this understanding, you know, aha, I know that this apparent self that's arising is uh, a construct of mind, and, and you start to understand that. You understand 
the craving produces your dissatisfaction and leads to impulsive actions. You start applying that in your life. You start to change the way your mind works. You're preparing your mind. It's ready. It's getting ready for this breakthrough. And if you do this diligently, I don't see any reason why somebody who knows what they're doing and works at it diligently, you know, can't get to that point that they need to be at to have that sort of breakthrough experience where we can say, yes, awaken now. The, we need to have equanimity. Equanimity is something we cultivate by practicing it, by trying not to be attached, by trying not to manifest aversion, by being aware of it. This increases our equanimity. When we meditate, we come to profound stillness, which when we get up from it, we feel we experience much more equanimity. As our insight grows into selflessness and emptiness and impermanence and dissatisfactoriness, that produces even more equanimity. The deepest states of meditation, the samatha, that the, the, the practice that I've been teaching you is intended to bring you towards, is also known as meditative equipoise. And its characteristic is equanimity and tranquility. But what is equanimity? I mean, quite simply, it's the absence of craving. And it's not that you have destroyed craving through your meditation practice, but through the practice of concentration and mindfulness, you bring your mind to a state where it has strong equanimity, strong enough that it can counteract the innate craving that is still a part of you. When you have enough equanimity and you have enough understanding of selflessness and emptiness and impermanence and dissatisfactoriness, what's going to happen is it, it, it's sort of like this information permeates into your mind to the extent that at some point, whatever comes up next, the next thing that comes up, that normally you would grasp to, your mind says, why? bother with this anymore and it just quits. When your mind stops, the world stops. What that means is your mind stops fabricating. And the fabrication of self and the fabrication of a world the way you've lived in it for a moment is interrupted. The mind just says to heck with it for a moment. It doesn't last long. It may be like this, maybe 30 seconds, maybe 5 minutes may even be 15 minutes. But it doesn't matter what happens when the mind stops fabricating your reality. It has, your mind has, let me say you have, there's no you in this, but your mind has access to the reality that it is, that everything is, the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth. And this is a very important new piece of data that your mind will now use as it resumes its activities based in grasping and as craving re-arises. But now there is a new piece of information there that this is all empty. And that changes everything. 
That changes your experience of everything. It's not that hard to get to. You've all experienced, I'm sure everybody in this room, I, I, well, I don't know everybody's practiced that well, but I know most of you have had some experience of equanimity, have had some fleeting experiences of the insights that we're talking about into emptiness and uh, selflessness and impermanence and the nature of uh, suffering. All you need to do is keep doing the same thing and keep deepening that understanding. And it will, it will eventually bring us to the place where the mind operates in a completely different way. Now, I've gone on a bit. I'm going to have to let you go home. But I'm going to just tell you something that I basically described this in terms of what you might call the standard Buddhist view. Because Buddhist practice is designed to bring you to that point where the mind stops, you have that immediate experience, and it changes the way the mind works thereafter. That moment of awakening. And it is tremendously valuable to achieve that as a result of systematic practice. And that's what Buddhism is about, a systematic practice that brings you to that point. And that's really valuable because once, it's ha once you've made it happen, you can make it happen again and again and again. And you can continue to ascend through the four stages of enlightenment. But, two things. Sometimes it can happen by accident and you'll have that moment of awakening but it's not a result of systematic practice, which means you won't be able to do it again and again and again. If that happens, then you need to continue the practice so you can repeat it. Another thing that happens is that you may never have a moment, you may, may never experience a moment that, oh wow, that's when I awaken. Now, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I found in doing some my personal researches in the world that not everybody has a moment of awakening, but they seem in all respects to be awakened. So I'm not sure if they had a moment of awakening and they just didn't remember it, but it still had the effect on their mind, still made the impact. Or maybe, maybe the change can happen just maybe just through the same process that brings us to this point, maybe the change can happen as a result of that without there needing to be that sudden cessation of the activity of the mind. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what happens there, but I just wanted to throw that in because if you are only, if you only become acquainted with the standard Buddhist view then the only way anybody ever becomes enlightened is that they pass through all the stages and then they have a moment of awakening and then they repeat the process and they repeat the, the fruition experience of the, of the awakening. But there is more to it than that. So I, I wanted you to know that uh, it can happen in other ways. But I don't know. Does that... Does that convey the possibility that it is accessible? It, it, it is. It is. It's accessible through systematic practice. It's also accessible in other ways. 
people in, in situations of, of very extreme suffering, uh, some of them become awakened. Out of all the millions of people that lived and died in the Nazi concentration camps, some of them became awakened as a result of it. So, I mean, I don't recommend that path. But it, ha it does happen in other ways. It can also happen in extreme devotion and in profound service. Profound service is a very good way to cultivate an attitude of selflessness. Um, what it would seem is that uh, by cultivating the qualities of an awakened person, you increase the probability of awakening. So if you practice compassion, if you practice self, uh, selflessness in every way, any way that you can think of, uh, if you uh, attempt to overcome craving to whatever degree that you can through the cultivation of uh, equanimity, if you do all of the things, if you learn to be in a state of joy, in other words, if you practice being a Buddha, that is really all these practices are ways of practicing learning to be a Buddha. So the more time you spend practicing being a Buddha, then the sooner you will become a Buddha. Okay, well, we only had time for your question. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. You know, I, I appreciate the dedication that it takes to come to talks like this. And I, I want to tell you, you should feel very good. This is, this is wonderful. I feel really good that you're willing to do this. And I, I hope that the things that I tell you, the things that I teach you, uh, I hope you can use them. I hope that you make the best use of them. But the kind of diligence and dedication that just simply brings you out here and brings you to practice regularly every day. That's what it takes. That's what will guarantee that you can become enlightened in this life.